Chapter Five of Animals of the Past by Frederick Lucas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeffrey Smith. Birds of Old. With head, hands, wings, or feet, pursues his way, and swims, or sinks, or wades, or creeps, or flies. When we come to discuss the topic of the earliest bird, not the one in the proverb, our choice of subjects is indeed limited, being restricted to the famous and oft-described Archaeopteryx from the quarries of Solenhofen, which at present forms the starting point in the history of the feathered race. Bird-like, or at least feathered, creatures must have existed before this, as it is improbable that feathers in flight were acquired at one bound, and this lends probability to the view that at least some of the tracks in the Connecticut Valley are really the footprints of birds. Not birds as we now know them, but still creatures wearing feathers these being the distinctive badge and livery of the order. For we may well speak of the feathered race, the exclusive prerogative of the bird being not flight, but feathers. No bird is without them. No other creature wears them. So that birds may be exactly defined in two words, feathered animals reptiles and even mammals may go quite naked or cover themselves with a defensive armor of bony plates or horny scales but under the blaze of the tropical sun or in the chill waters of arctic seas birds wear feathers only although in the penguins the feathers have become so changed that their identity is almost lost so far as flight goes there is one entire order of mammals whose members the bats are quite as much at home in the air as the birds themselves and in bygone days the empire of the air belonged to the pterodactyls even frogs and fishes have tried to fly and some of the latter have nearly succeeded in the attempt as for wings, it may be said that they are made on very different patterns in such animals as the pterodactyl, bat, and bird, and that while the end to be achieved is the same, it is reached by very different methods. The wing membrane of a bat is spread between his outstretched fingers, the thumb alone being left free while in the pterodactyl the thumb is wanting and the membrane supported only by what in us is the little finger a term that is a decided misnomer in the case of the pterodactyl in birds the fingers have lost their individuality and are modified for the attachment or support of the wing feathers but in archaeopteryx the hand has not reached this stage for the fingers were partly free and tipped with claws 
we get some side lights on the structure of primitive birds by studying the young and the earlier stages of living species for in a very general way it may be said that the development of the individual is a sort of rough sketch or hasty outline of the development of the class of which it is a member thus the transitory stages through which the chick passes before hatching give us some idea of the structure of the adult birds or bird-like creatures of long ago now in embryonic birds the wing ends in a sort of paw and the fingers are separate quite different from what they become a little later on and not unlike their condition in archaeopteryx and even more like what is found in the wing of an ostrich then too there are a few birds still left such as the ostrich that have not kept pace with the others and are a trifle more like reptiles than the vast majority of their relatives and these help a little in explaining the structure of early birds among these is a queer bird with a queer name hoaxin found in south america which when young uses its little wings much like legs just as we may suppose was done by birds of old to climb about the branches mr quelch who has studied these curious birds in their native wilds of british guiana tells us that soon after hatching the nestlings begin to crawl about by means of their legs and wings the well-developed claws on the thumb and finger being constantly in use for hooking to surrounding objects if they are drawn from the nest by means of their legs they hold on firmly to the twigs both with their bill and wings and if the nest be upset they hold on to all objects with which they come in contact by bill feet and wings making considerable use of the bill with the help of the clawed wings to raise themselves to a higher level thus by putting these various facts together we obtain some pretty good ideas regarding the appearance and habits of the first birds the immediate ancestors of birds their exact point of departure from the other vertebrates is yet to be discovered at one time it was considered that they were the direct descendants of dinosaurs or that at least both were derived from the same parent forms and while that view was almost abandoned it is again being brought forward with much to support it it has also been thought that birds and those flying reptiles the pterodactyls have had a common ancestry and the possibility of this is still entertained be that as it may it is safe to consider that back in the past earlier than the jurassic were creatures neither bird nor reptile but possessing rudimentary feathers and having the promise of a wing in the structure of their forelegs and sometime one of these animals may come to light until then archaeopteryx remains the earliest known bird 
in the jurassic then when the dinosaurs were the lords of the earth and small mammals just beginning to appear we come upon traces of full-fledged birds the first intimation of their presence was the imprint of a single feather found in that ancient treasure house the solenhofen quarries but as hercules was revealed by his foot so the bird was made evident by the feather whose discovery was announced august fifteenth eighteen sixty one and a little later in september of the same year the bird itself turned up and in eighteen seventy seven a second specimen was found the two representing two species if not two distinct genera these were very different from any birds now living so different indeed and bearing such evident traces of their reptilian ancestry that it is necessary to place them apart from other animals in a separate division of the class birds archaeopteryx was considerably smaller than a crow with a stout little head armed with sharp teeth as scarce as hen's teeth was no joke in that distant period while as he fluttered through the air he trailed after him a tail longer than his body beset with feathers on either side everyone knows that nowadays the feathers of a bird's tail are arranged like the sticks of a fan and that the tail opens and shuts like a fan but in archaeopteryx the feathers were arranged in pairs a feather on each side of every joint of the tail so that on a small scale the tail was something like that of a kite and because of this long lizard-like tail this bird and his immediate kith and kin are placed in a group dubbed sururi or lizard-tailed because impressions of feathers are not found all around these specimens some have thought that they were confined to certain portions of the body the wings tail and thighs the other parts being naked there seems however no good reason to suppose that such was the case for it is extremely improbable that such perfect and important feathers as those of the wings and tail should alone have been developed while there are many reasons why the feathers of the body might have been lost before the bird was covered by mud or why their impressions do not show it was a considerable time after the finding of the first specimen that the presence of teeth in the jaws was discovered partly because the british museum specimen was imperfect and partly because no one suspected that birds had ever possessed teeth and so no one ever looked for them footnote the skull was lacking and a part of the upper jaw lying to one side was thought to belong to a fish end of footnote when in eighteen seventy seven a more complete example was found the existence of teeth was unmistakably shown but in the meantime in february eighteen seventy three professor marsh had announced the presence of teeth 
and hesperornis and so to him belongs the credit of being the discoverer of birds with teeth the next birds that we know are from our own country and although separated by an interval of thousands of years from the jurassic archaeopteryx time enough for the members of one group to have quite lost their wings they still retain teeth and in this respect the most bird-like of them is quite unlike any modern bird these come from the chalk beds of western kansas and the first specimens were obtained by professor marsh in his expeditions of eighteen seventy and eighteen seventy one but not until a few years later after the material had been cleaned and was being studied was it ascertained that these birds were armed with teeth the smaller of these birds which was apparently not unlike a small gull in general appearance was saving its teeth so thoroughly a bird that it may be passed by without further notice but the larger was remarkable in many ways hesperornis the western bird was a great diver in some ways the greatest of the divers for it stood higher than the king penguin though more slender and graceful in general build looking somewhat like an overgrown absolutely wingless loon the penguins as everyone knows swim with their front limbs we can't call them wings which though containing all the bones of a wing have become transformed into powerful paddles hesperornis on the other hand swam altogether with its legs swam so well with them indeed that through disuse the wings dwindled away and vanished save one bone this however is not stating the theory quite correctly of course the matter cannot be actually proved hesperornis was a large bird upwards of five feet in length and if its ancestors were equally bulky their wings were quite too large to be used in swimming under water as are those of such short-winged forms as the ox which fly under the water quite as much as they fly over it hence the wings were closely folded upon the body so as to offer the least possible resistance and being disused they and their muscles dwindled while the bones and muscles of the legs increased by constant use by the time the wings were small enough to be used in so dense a medium as water the muscles had become too feeble to move them and so degeneration proceeded until but one bone remained a mere vestige of the wing that had been the penguins retained their great breast muscles and so did the great auk because their wings are used in swimming since it requires even more strength to move a small wing in water than it does to move a large wing in the thinner air as for our domesticated fowls the turkeys chickens and ducks there has not been sufficient lapse of time for their muscles to dwindle and besides artificial selection the breeding of fowls for food has kept up the mere size of the muscles although these lack the strength to be found in those of wild birds 
as a swimming bird one that swims with its legs and not with its wings hesperornis has probably never been equaled for the size and appearance of the bones indicate great power while the bones of the foot were so joined to those of the leg as to turn edgewise as the foot was brought forward and thus to offer the least possible resistance to the water it is a remarkable fact that the leg bones of hesperornis are hollow remarkable because as a rule the bones of aquatic animals are more or less solid their weight being supported by the water but those of the great diver were almost as light as if it had dwelt upon the dry land that it did not dwell there is conclusively shown by its build and above all by its feet for the foot of a running bird is modified in quite another way the bird was probably covered with smooth soft feathers something like those of an apteryx this we know because professor williston found a specimen showing the impression of the skin of the lower part of the leg as well as of the feathers that covered the thigh and head while such a covering seems rather inadequate for a bird of such exclusively aquatic habits as hesperornis must have been there seems no getting away from the facts in the case in the shape of professor williston's specimen and we have in the snake bird one of the most aquatic of recent birds an instance of similarly poor covering as all know who have seen this bird at home its feathers shed the water very imperfectly and after long continued submersion become saturated a fact which partly accounts for the habit the bird has of hanging itself out to dry the restoration which mr gleason has drawn differs radically from any yet made and is the result of a careful study of the specimen belonging to the united states national museum no one can appreciate the peculiarities of hesperornis and its remarkable departures from other swimming birds who has not seen the skeleton mounted in a swimming attitude the great length of the legs their position at the middle of the body the narrowness of the body back of the hip joint and the disproportionate length of the outer toe are all brought out in a manner which a picture of the bird squatting upon its haunches fails utterly to show as for the tail it is evident from the size and breadth of the bones that something of the kind was present it is also evident that it was not like that of an ordinary bird and so it has been drawn with just a suggestion of archaeopteryx about it the most extraordinary thing about hesperornis however is the position of the legs relative to the body and this is something that was not even suspected until the skeleton was mounted in a swimming attitude as anyone knows who has watched a duck swim the usual place for the feet and legs is beneath and in a line with the body 
but in our great extinct diver the articulations of the leg bones are such that this is impossible and the feet and lower joint of the legs called the tarsus must have stood out nearly at right angles to the body like a pair of oars this is so peculiar and anomalous an attitude for a bird's legs that although apparently indicated by the shape of the bones it was at first thought to be due to the crushing and consequent distortion to which the bones had been subjected and an endeavor was made to place the legs in the ordinary position even though this was done at the expense of some little dislocation of the joints but when the mounting of the skeleton had advanced further it became more evident that hesperornis was not an ordinary bird and that he could not have swum in the usual manner since this would have brought his great kneecaps up into his body which would have been uncomfortable and so at the cost of some little time and trouble the mountings were so changed that the legs stood out at the sides of the body as shown in the picture footnote the mounting of fossil bones is quite a different matter from the wiring of an ordinary skeleton since the bones are not only so hard that they cannot be bored and wired like those of a recent animal but they are so brittle and heavy that often they will not sustain their own weight hence such bones must be supported from the outside and to do this so that the mountings will be strong enough to support their weight allow the bones to be removed for study and yet be inconspicuous is a difficult task End of footnote a final word remains to be said about toothed birds which is that the visitor who looks upon one for the first time will probably be disappointed the teeth are so loosely implanted in the jaw that most of them fall out shortly after death while the few that remain are so small as not to attract observation by the time the eocene period was reached even before that birds had become pretty much what we now see them and very little change has taken place in them since that time they seem to have become so exactly adapted to the conditions of existence that no further modification has taken place this may be expressed in another way by saying that while the mammals of the eocene have no near relatives among those now living entire large groups having passed completely out of existence the few birds that we know might so far as their appearance and affinities go have been killed yesterday were we to judge of the former abundance of birds by the number we find in a fossil state we should conclude that in the early days of the world they were remarkably scarce for bird bones are among the rarest of fossils but from the high degree of development evidenced by the few examples that have come to light and the fact that these represent various and quite distinct species we are led to conclude that birds were abundant enough 
but that we simply do not find them. Footnote. But three birds, besides a stray feather or two, are so far known from the Eocene of North America. One of these is a fowl not very unlike some of the small curassows of South America. Another is a little bird, supposed to be related to the sparrows, while the third is a large bird of uncertain relationships. End of footnote. Several eggs, too, or rather casts of eggs, have lately been found in the Cretaceous and Miocene strata of the West, and as eggs and birds are usually associated, we are liable at any time to come upon the bones of the birds that laid them. To the writer's mind, no thoroughly satisfactory explanation has been given for the scarcity of bird remains, but the reason commonly advanced is that, owing to their lightness, dead birds float for a much longer time than other animals, and hence are more exposed to the ravages of the weather and the attacks of carrion feeding animals. It has also been said that the power of flight enabled birds to escape calamities that caused the death of contemporary animals. But all birds do not fly, and birds do fall victims to storms, cold, and starvation, and even perish of pestilence like the cormorants of Bering Island, whose ranks have twice been decimated by disease. It is true that where carnivorous animals abound, dead birds do disappear quickly. And my friend Dr. Steniger tells me that while hundreds of dead seafowl are cast on the shores of the Commander Islands, it is a rare thing to find one after daylight, as the bodies are devoured by the Arctic foxes that prowl about the shores at night. But again, as in the Miocene of southern France and in the Pliocene of Oregon, remains of birds are fairly numerous, showing that under proper conditions their bones are preserved for future reference, so that we may hope some day to come upon specimens that will enable us to round out the history of bird life in the past. References the first discovered specimen of Archaeopteryx, Archaeopteryx macrura, is in the British Museum. The second, more complete example is in the Royal Museum of Natural History, Berlin. The largest collection of toothed birds, including the types of Hesperornis, Ichthyornis, and others, is in the Yale University Museum at New Haven. The United States National Museum at Washington has a fine-mounted skeleton of Hesperornis, and the State University of Kansas at Lawrence has the example showing the impressions of feathers. For scientific descriptions of these birds, the reader is referred to Owen's paper on the Archaeopteryx of von Meyer, with a description of the fossil remains, etc., in the Transactions of the Philosophical Society of London for 1863, page 33, 
and odontornithes a monograph of the extinct toothed birds of north america by o c marsh much popular and scientific information concerning the early birds is to be found in newton's dictionary of birds and the story of bird life by w p pycraft the structure and life of birds by f w headley the story of the birds by j newton basket end of chapter five